Well, we have Andres on the line. Are you there, Andres? Yes, I'm here. Ah, how are you? How are you doing? Yeah, very well, thank you. Good. Thanks for having me. That's a pleasure. Thank you ever so much to uh, for speaking with us here on Brooklyn's Radio this evening. No, nice to be on here. Good, good. Um, now, just for everybody at home, Andres is an ex-Welsh international Cardiff Blues rugby player, um, and it's uh, fantastic to have your expert knowledge on uh, on the Rugby World Cup this evening. Um, Andres, I just want to firstly ask you what um, what your what your thoughts of the tournament so far are, really. Oh, that is uh, such a broad one because, I mean, we've seen some fantastic matches uh, literally all across. It's been great for some of the Tier 2 nations. You know, putting in some big performances as well. You know, a couple of big upsets, and it's just been nail-biting stuff. I don't think there's been one match um, that really wasn't entertaining. You know, every single one of them has been pretty much nail-biting on the edge of your seat stuff. It's it's brilliant, and it's it's a great um, it's a great example of of what the professional sports really should be when you see tournaments like this. So no, it's it's been fantastic. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's great for those tier two nations, and and uh, you know, listening to the sort of punditry, you you hear that some of these guys are, you know, I guess just sort of regular guys. They're not professional sportsmen. They are lawyers. They're solicitors. They're they're doctors. They're dentists. I mean, uh, what, what do you think it must be like for someone? You know, obviously having played at such a high level yourself, what, what must it be like for someone who who has a sort of a normal job, shall we say, and then has to go out and perform at such a high level on the rugby pitch? Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely huge. I mean, you take the team from Uruguay or the team from Namibia. I think they've only got five or six players who actually play full-time. The rest of them, like you say, bankers and um, bakers and literally all sorts. So I can only imagine that for guys like them, it is one, a huge test just to be able to put yourself up against some of the best teams in the world. But then at the same time, it's it's I can only imagine from their family's point of view what tremendous sort of how proud they must be for for each one of those players who get to play on the stage and get to be seen by millions of people all around the world i mean that must be huge for them yeah i mean a a great stepping stone in in sort of the future of um sort of tier two nation rugby hopefully well that's what we see every time the world cup comes around and you start seeing these teams perform well because on the back of that generally comes a little bit more funding from uh, various institutes various uh, say for example the irb when they start actually pushing out a little bit more to try and help these nations become semi-professional so that by the next World Cup, hopefully they'll be able to spend a little bit more time. We've seen just what a dramatic influence it is for nations like Uruguay and Namibia. Just to get some time, like a full month, actually spent together. You know, it's something that most of these guys wouldn't have been would have experienced. I mean, you take, for example, do some work with the guys who, um, who did the nutrition for Namibia and it's it's fascinating to see. I mean, with professional rugby here, you do um, hydration tests every day and everything with your nutrition is, is sort of weighed and uh, everything is very, very meticulous. And these guys were literally having a barbecue with <laughs> anything goes type barbecues after rugby training, you know? Wow. So, and we were trying to explain to them health and nutrition at this level and they just didn't get it. They've never been exposed to it. So it's great learning for all of them and it's just a great experience for them yeah fantastic well listen i want to um i want to just touch on england uh, slightly now i i know you're sort of uh, a born south african and and i've got welsh um you know it turned over to to wales but obviously you know you're on the phone for for your expert knowledge i mean what are your thoughts about the early exit of england 
I think it, it was always going to be an incredibly difficult pool. You know, it's we always talk about it. It sounds nice when you read a headline of the pool of death, but this was literally going to be death to either England, Wales, or Australia. That was always going to be the case. And for one of these teams, it was always going to be a near miss. And unfortunately for England, it literally came down to 20 minutes in the second half against Wales. Yeah, really what did, I believe it cost them. Yeah. I mean, how how can you, I suppose, sitting on the sidelines, uh, you know, or, or in front of the TV, it's easy to say, but, you know, when when you've got such a commanding lead in a match, how how do you sort of give away that? What, what, what can go wrong? You know, obviously being in the locker room, it must be um, a time for, you know, sort of reflection and, and what needs to be done. But it, it seems that, you know, as you said, it was it came down to 20 minutes and it was literally as, as though England threw it away. I mean, how easy is that to do in, in, in that sort of uh, situation? Well, that's the real difficult thing. I mean, these guys would have spent months and months in advance looking at different scenarios and planning and training incredibly hard. And they'd have spent the, the, the best part of uh, last year planning towards every scenario. But the one thing that no matter how you train, you can't really mimic the momentum shifts that happen during a game. Absolutely. Uh, the way that a referee per- perceives a, the breakdown area or his perception at uh, scrum time, for example. It's those 50-50 calls, the unpredictability of it, that is just, there's no way you can actually plan for that. And that's why until you get into these matches, no matter how you've prepared, no matter how much time you've spent and how many people you've had involved with the planning process, unfortunately, it does come down to the variability that is professional sport. It, it happens, well, that's the nature of all sports, really. Yeah, I mean, we see it all the time. We see it in, in you know, a whole host of sports. So, you know, I guess uh, I guess rugby isn't uh, it isn't that different. You know, we, we can see tennis players win two sets and then go on to, to lose, a, lose a match sort of in five. So, um, you know, the momentum shifts, as you say, are, are huge and um, I, I guess you can't plan for them. Um, what does Lancaster need to do, though? What, what does he need to do from here? I would be as bold as to say that England's best move right now would be to not get rid of him. I know that generally when these type of things happen and you'll look at it from two points again, you'll you'll either say the the public and everybody else will say, well, he has to be sacked. Um, And the coach will feel that he has a responsibility uh, to take, well, pretty much to take responsibility for what's happened and and therefore he'll rather, rather than hang out any of the players to die. He'll rather say, well, I'll step down. But I think there's a lot to be said for the learning that would have happened. And I think Johnny Wilkinson made a very good point of that after the uh, match during the the commentary, that he said that if you're a a real English supporter, then you'll understand the importance of going through experiences like this. If you want to see England be the world's best team, then at some point they need to experience these type of things in Absolutely. order to get to that. Yeah, and there's no doubt that that, that side that uh, Stuart Lancaster has, you know, under his sort of control, if you will, is a is a world class winning winning side. It's you know it's beaten the likes of Australia a couple of times and New Zealand, um, you know, in the past sort of four years, which is nothing to be sniffed at. Um, so you know it's interesting that you think he should stay. But does he need to make any any serious changes in terms of positioning or you know? There's a lots of question marks about Robshaw, um, you know, maintaining his his captaincy. What I mean. How do you feel about uh, about Robshaw as a captain, and, and do you think Lancaster should be should be supporting him, or should you do you think he should be making some some serious changes? 
it's it's always one of those difficult ones. If you look at the modern game nowadays, most teams play with a minimum of one ball fetcher. And then you look, for example, at Australia with Pocock um, playing eight, but he's basically an open side flanker. So most teams, you'll have at least one, but a lot of teams play with two. It's the same thing Wales do when they play Tiprick and Sam Warburton in the same back row. It's absolutely vital to have that player that actually can turn over ball inside your own 22 in defense. It's, these, it's not really the run of the mill when some guy goes in there in the dark art and gets his hands on that ball when you couldn't have predicted it. That's what makes these guys so good. And at the moment, England don't have anybody like that. They talk about Stefan Armitage, but at the same time, Stefan Armitage fitness, I don't think he'd have been able to make it through the rigors of, of World Cup preparation. And I think Lancaster understood that. But at the same time, there is no standout sevens at the moment. You take, for example, every country at the moment have got their their standout seven, France, Dissertois, um, Ireland, O'Brien, Wales, Warburton. England, if you look at even at all the club levels, where's your real standout seven? Yeah. Your your real ball fetcher. So he's, he's got a bit he's got a bit of touting he's got a bit of touting to do, has he, over the next uh, next couple of months before the Six Nations? Well, I think there'd, there'd be a case to kind of say, if you look at the combination between Tom Wood and Rob Shaw, is rather to move um, Rob Shaw to six, I think would be something from his type of playing. I would suggest he'd be a better six. Mm. He's a good line-out option. He does carry ball. And he's, he's very influential as a leader. But at the same time, I think, and that's the kind of thing that spoiled it for, um, uh, for Lancaster, was that... Uh, it's almost sad to say, but he was spoiled for choice in the backs, which meant that yeah. he had guys come through in the last year yeah. who've been phenomenal. Watson yeah, yeah, um, yeah. has been absolutely phenomenal. And therefore, you kind of got to that point where he hadn't have enough time with the combinations. You, again, you look at what happens in most of the other countries who are playing well at the moment. They've had combinations who've played together for quite a long time. You know, you've always knew there was going to be Jamie Roberts and Jonathan Davis or... Scott Williams. That's been the combination for the last five years. Whereas at the moment, every weekend, you can pick a different English English back team. And although that's awesome for um, English rugby, it's those combinations which they needed to have bled in leading up to the World Cup. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's let's leave England where, where they are for now. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about Wales and Ireland, actually, because, um, you know, we, we've always known pretty much from the start of the tournament, Wales have been struggling with with many injuries. And now Ireland going into the quarters um, have also got a number of sort of sin- significant um, injuries. How do you think they are going to fare in the quarterfinals with, you know, potentially, um, you know, game changing um, uh, difficulties I think their their quarter is really going to come down to whether Sexton makes it um, back fit this weekend I think with him and Keith Alls being a 50-50 for the match if those two come through I, I still think they'll do okay um, the intensity they played with on the weekend was just the type of island that will beat anybody on the day yeah massive but with they? having lost O'Connell and now O'Brien as well on, on the one week ban Although I think O'Connell will be replaced with a, a very good player, got an interesting surname, uh, Henderson as well, by the way. But <laughs> <laughs> I think I think O'Connell is replaceable as a player, um, as an athlete, but as a leader, he's just so influential and there's no way yeah. they'll be able to replace him. So to then lose Sexton as well, 
you're just losing sort of that key chain that, that that really drives the team. Well, it's interesting you say that Sexton is is, is potentially not going to play because um, I've got a, a headline in front of me here that it says Ireland are ready to risk the injured Sexton. So, um, you know, if he does play, I, I mean, I guess that they're, they're playing Argentina. You can never sort of write off Argentina, but in the in the scheme of who they're playing, it's it's not a New Zealand, it's not an Australia. I think potentially they might get the job done. Is that are they, are they your thoughts as well? Well, I think the one thing that counts in Ireland's favour is um, Argentina having lost Marcelo Bosch, uh, who plays for Saracens. But Marcelo's an incredibly clever player, but he's also sort of the the, the kingpin in their defensive system. He communicates really well and he drives that defensive system. So having lost him um, on that dangerous tackle... I think they're they're quite fortunate that he only got a one-week ban, but at least that's a glimmer of hope that Ireland will look to try and expose. I I think it'll be incredibly, um, oh, what do you call it? Uh, the intensity of that match is going to be ferocious in those first fifteen twenty minutes. Yeah, you know, I think people are just going to come flying in from all angles, and I think what happens in a game like that generally. You look at the Argentinians who give away silly penalties at time and who lose a little bit of discipline. It could be as simple as a yellow card swaying that game either way. OK, great. And and so then what about Wales' Wales's chances against uh, South Africa? Are they, have, they, have, they, have they got the, uh, the strength and depth to, to get the win there? I think the South Africans will be quietly confident um, going towards this game. Um, I just think Wales at the moment, even when Australia on the weekend went down to 13 men, they still didn't quite look like they were going to score. Um, they've very got a, they've got a very direct game plan now against most teams. That's okay, but against the South Africans, who play very similarly, I think it's going to be really a battle between um, Dan Bigger and and whoever they play at, at 10 for South Africa because I think it's just going to be a huge kicking battle. And again, then you go into the bounce of the ball type scenarios. The one positive Wales have is that it's Alan Wynn's 100th cap and he's a very influential player. Um, Sam Warburton is a great captain, but he doesn't, he doesn't tend to speak much. Yeah. Generally, the guy who speaks is, is Alan Wynn and Gethin Jenkins. So for him to have achieved his, his 100 caps are going to be huge. And I think the boys will galvanise around that. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we wish, obviously, Wales and Ireland and in, indeed Scotland the best of luck um, there. Um, just very quickly on Dan Bigger. What do you make of his sort of uh, pre, pre-kicking uh, routine? <laughs> Look, my... Uh, I'm, be I'm be kind, be kind, Andres. <laughs> No, I've got, I've got a fairly good understanding. I know what he's doing from a psychological point of view. I know what he's trying to do. But, um, of course, it does look funny. But luckily, knowing Dan, he's not too bothered about what it looks like. Yeah. He cares about the effectiveness of it. Um, at the end of the day, everybody was quite worried when we lost Lee Halfpenny, but they tended to forget that Dan Biggers won uh, the Golden Boot and the Rubber Direct, I think, two out of the last three years. Yeah, he's been absolutely fantastic. Accuracy. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. But, but more than just the, the the funny kicking style, you look at the the England match, and sorry to bring that up again, but when um, I think Liam Williams got knocked out, there was a period of time where the game went a bit quiet, and funnily enough, Dan Bigger was the guy who brought the Welsh team together, and he was clearly talking, pointing fingers, giving them quick and direct direction going into where do we go for the next five minutes, while the English players were stood around, they weren't doing the same thing. 
And that's what made Dan Bigger so incredibly good. He sets incredibly high standards of everybody else. And because he knows their jobs really well, you know, he, he's very, very influential. Yeah, brilliant. Well, uh, as I said earlier, uh, we wish them the best of luck for, 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 the, for the match at the weekend. Now, listen, we, we can't have the interview without talking about Japan's huge win against South Africa. W- what are your thoughts on that, Andres? I think that'll, that'll go down as, as, well, even statistically, it is the biggest upset um, in, in the modern-day game. Um, the previous biggest upset from a Tier 2 nation beating a Tier 1 nation was Tonga beating France, which is um, three, four years ago, but nothing ever happening like this in a World Cup, and definitely not against uh, the South Africans. Um, oh, like you, you even hear the comments um, their coach made, Heineke Mayer made, that saying that he literally cried for the best part of 24 hours. Wow. And when he says that, he doesn't mean he was upset, he means he was physically sat and cried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it would have been massive, but then I think you, you use that as an example for what England are going Quite through right. now what a, a big loss can do, you know, and, and again, another example would be Dan Bigger missing out on the Lions tour. He was mm. one of the only Welsh players not to go. The resilience that's bred from disappointment is massive. So I think opportunities like that, having lost against Japan, now I think on the one side, I think I try and look at it from the South African's point of view, but from a Japanese point of view, that is absolutely massive. That would to me, will go down as one of the best games I've ever watched just because of what sport is really supposed to be about, which is passion, which is the courage. Mm. You know, It's about what sportsmanship really is. You see every time one of their players went down, another player was there to try to pick him up. And then even small things, when they went for the line-out uh, in the last three minutes of the game, having the bottle to throw to the back of the line-out, mm. you know, just the courage that that must have took, Generally, you throw to the middle or do what England did, which is throw to the front, make sure we get the ball. Yeah, absolutely. But these guys just had the courage to say that if we're going to come to the World Cup and if we ever get the opportunity to take on one of the top teams and potentially come away with a win, mm. a draw is not good enough. Do or That's die. That's what sport really is supposed to be about. Absolutely. Fantastic for, for Japan. Um, so, listen, Andres, we, we, we're getting on a bit. A couple, couple more questions. Can a Northern Hemisphere um, side win the Rugby World Cup this year? Um, I don't think it'll be Scotland. I think they potentially will lose to Australia on the weekend with having lost Johnny Gray and um, yeah, absolutely and Forty. So I think they'll struggle. Ireland having if, if Sexton comes through, I still still think Ireland have the potential to go through to the semi final, and from there you never know. Mm. Much as it pains me to say, I think the Wales South African game. I can't see Wales do it just based on their attack but their defense is so strong that potentially they could win it with a kicking battle yeah and go through and then obviously we've we've all said this in the past when the all blacks take on france anything can happen quite right when france take on anyone anything can happen hey (laughs) so i can't see one of the northern hemisphere teams win the world cup but i hope that I stand corrected. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and me too. So, uh, of course, uh, that, that's gr- that's great to hear from you. From you, but but if a Northern Hemisphere side won't win it, it's obviously going to be Southern. It's going to be Australia. It's going to be South Africa or New Zealand. Who's going to win it then, Andres? Who 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 do you tip to win the the Rugby World Cup 2015? If if you had to take my mortgage off me, I'd go All Blacks and Australia <laughs> in the final. Oh. With- 
the All Blacks winning it. Which would be a cracking final, so... Um, it, it would be. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Andres, listen, thank you ever so much for chatting to me here on Brooklyn's Radio. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and, um, you know, enjoy the rest of the tournament, um, and I will catch up with you very soon. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Andres, really thank you ever so much. Take care. Bye now. Bye. <laughs>